if you want to make sure that what I'm saying is right, I reckon you should have your Bibles open. What we're going to do is we're going to have a conversation, hopefully, uh, with the Apostle Paul and how it relates to FIEC uh, through the lens of his letter to the Philippians. So this is not uh, a sermon in the traditional sense of a sermon, perhaps. It's not a, a TED talk, certainly, uh, but it will be the Word of God. So I encourage you to have your Bibles open. I encourage you, uh, if it's helpful to you, to write some notes. Uh, depends how good you are at juggling everything, doesn't it? Um, thank you for your prayer and thank you for the opportunity to be talking with you. I do love uh, this role within FIC. I love being able to uh, get to know you and the gospel ministry that's happening around the country, uh, to support you in that, encourage you in that, to be able to open, there we go, to be able to open the scriptures with you. Uh, it's a great joy. As uh, as Tim reminded us last night. Uh, how we live and how we speak sets an example. And Philippians uh, introduces us to the apostle who wants us to follow his example as he follows the example of Christ. Uh, he mentions that twice in this letter. Uh, the first instance is in chapter 3. Uh, and you can see it in verse 17. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. I commend that to you because we see from 1 Corinthians 11 that we are to model ourselves on Paul as he models himself on Jesus Christ. But here he's commending others as a model to follow as well. And in fact, he's done that already in chapter 2. And we'll see that when we go through and look at Timothy and Epaphroditus. But he also says down in chapter 4 and verse 9, Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. So what is it that the apostle has been modelling? Uh, lots of things, uh, absolutely. Focused on the gospel, definitely. But I want to look at this through two lenses with you this morning. Now, the first lens is that of focus on fellowship. After all, we're a fellowship of independent evangelical churches. I mean, we have fellowship in Christ. And Paul talks about the importance of fellowship here in this letter to the Philippians. And the second lens that I want to look through is that of being humbly ambitious. Uh, let's look at each in turn. So first of all, uh, we'll take a, a quick look at what it is to have partnership or to share together or to have fellowship. Indeed, uh, in my version of the Bible, which is the NIV I've got in front of me, you get different language for the same Greek word. The, the word we're quite familiar with, most of us, is the word koinonia. Uh, it's the fellowship word. It means partnership. It means sharing together. And what is it that we share? What is it that we fellowship in? Most of us, I suppose, growing up, thought that fellowship was something that you did occasionally at church. You know, you had to get through all the boring stuff so you could stick around afterwards for a time of fellowship. Uh, some of us meet in particular fellowship groups, a, a home fellowship or a youth or a men's or a women's fellowship and so on. But, but fellowship at its heart, Christian-wise, is sharing in some things that are very deep and very profound. And uh, I want you to see that Paul uses this word in Philippians on six occasions, and it gives us something of a spread of the importance of understanding what connects us together and what are the implications of that. And I think that's helpful for us as a fellowship. This will apply to us uh, across our churches. It applies to us within our churches. It applies beyond our churches as we connect with others uh, who are united together with Christ. So let's have a look first of all. I'm going to dig into chapter 1. There'll be excerpts that we read, and I'll highlight this partnership word as we go. I thank my God, I'm reading from chapter 1, verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership or your fellowship 
in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart and whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share, here's the word, all of you fellowship, you partner with me in God's grace. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. In the opening section of this letter, twice he mentions their fellowship and he takes us to the very core of what this fellowship is. It's a fellowship in grace, the grace of God. We belong to God because of his generous gift towards us. And we don't simply have a private relationship with God. We are brought into relationship with God so that we can enjoy relationship with each other. There's a fellowship, a unity, a pairing together in the grace of God. And and that, I think, when it's deeply understood, bonds people together quite profoundly. Uh, maybe you've shared experiences uh, that have been quite traumatic or when, you've, uh, when you've, you've been relieved of significant things and it's caused you to have a, a, a really powerful connection with people. Some of you might have seen the movie Sully. Uh, it's about the, the brilliant pilot who landed... Uh, an aircraft on the Hudson River. And uh, all the passengers in that plane got the experience of skidding to a landing uh, on the river rather than landing in a runway. And the movie actually highlights just how tense that experience was, uh, how these passengers had begun to realise that something was dreadfully and dangerously amiss And each one of them recognised the fact that because of the actions of Sully, the pilot, they are still alive. And uh, the movie has various themes and and it's an excellent one and I've just spoiled it for those of you who haven't seen it. But I commend it to you because right at the end, don't don't hang up too quickly on this movie, because right at the end you see footage of the real pilot and the real passengers and they have a powerful bond together. They are people who've been saved. They've been saved from certain death and probably the death of others if he wasn't able to land it in the Manhattan area on the river. They know the grace that has come to them. Friends, we have a far deeper grace than this. And it unites us together. We're not connected ultimately because we're part of a common denomination. Our bonds aren't because we share an interest in in rural Australia or coastal Australia because we're outbackanistas or we're, we're um, whatever they are, hipsters. It's not these cultural things that unite us. There's something far deeper. It's the grace of God. But it's not just a passive thing. When Paul talks in, in uh, verse 5 about your partnership, your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, I take it the nature of being a partner in the gospel, it's actually gospel has to do with the proclamation, the announcement, the advertisement of a victory. It's actually good news, this gospel, and good news is to be shared. And these people are united together with the apostle in the work of the gospel. Yes, the fruit of the gospel, yes, they've received the gospel, but there's an active partnership in this, isn't there? I know that there's great joy experienced within many of our churches who have a concentrated time of mission. Uh, It might be summer fest, it might be spring fest. I don't know if anyone does a winter fest or an autumn fest at at this point. Yes, we do, right. Uh, We we just live in a perfect part of the world that has no winter, spring, autumn or summer. Um, No, what we recognise when we're together like that is, is that there's a bond that is being expressed in our common task together. And uh, as we've heard already this morning and throughout the week, we share in the common task of wanting to reach Australia with the gospel. And there's a unity in this. And Paul says, you've had this with me since the first day until now. That partnership together, fellowship in the gospel. So we see that it's at the very core of who we are. 
receiving grace from God, living that out and proclaiming that to others. Turn with me to the next expression of fellowship. It comes in chapter 2 and verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common fellowship in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Here, the nature of our fellowship is that it's a deep unity with God himself. It, It is a fellowship in the spirit. It's come about through being united with Christ. It's expressed in language of grace towards us. And there's no hypothetical here. Yes, it's translated, <clears throat> pardon me, if you have these things. But, but the meaning of this, I take it, is because you have these things, then let it outflow. That's the nature of our common experience. We're united together in the spirit. And, and the beauty of that, friends, is it's not that we need to build a unity between us. It's not that we need to find a common point that will connect us together. It's not that we've got to manufacture anything. We've just got to realise what we've got. We we actually are united together in a deeper way than, than a physical family is united together. Yes, there's a DNA bond. There's a, there's a blood bond between a mother and a daughter, between brothers and sisters. But here there's a spirit bond. And, and the flesh and blood will pass away, but the spirit will not. We, we have a unity, uh, a fellowship together by our union with Christ that is shared in the common sharing of the spirit. And there are big implications for this. And we'll, we'll leave these implications for the next part as we talk about being humbly ambitious. But our unity is a, is a deep, profound, <clears throat> pardon me, spiritual unity in the spirit. The next of these references uh, to fellowship comes up in chapter 10. Uh, <laughs> did you pick up on that? <laughs> Good. <laughs> I didn't hear it until I heard it. Um, chapter 3, verse 10. All right. Boy, my church is going to have to work hard in the future. Now, We'll go into this passage again in a second as well. But, but pick it up at verse 10. <clears throat> I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation or fellowship in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This is an interesting one, isn't it? Um, uh, when we think about the way we usually word, use the word fellowship, you know, come along to a great time of fellowship, uh, I don't think any of us mean, look, join us in having a wonderful uh, cup of tea and some suffering together. It, it's not the way we think about fellowship, but Paul does. Paul does. He, he, he recognises that union with Christ uh, is profound, but it's not just union in glory, it's union in suffering. And the pathway to glory for Jesus was through his suffering and his death before his resurrection. And so Paul wants to actually appreciate what it is to participate with Jesus um, in his sufferings and through the power of his resurrection, enjoy life with God for all eternity. But there's a pathway there. And I believe it's important for us in thinking about fellowship together to realise that, that as we're united with Christ, there'll be pain and there'll be suffering. There'll be tough times. There'll be disappointments. There'll be struggles. We'll be treated badly by the world. We'll sadly be treated badly often by each other. But that's what happened to Jesus. Uh, we want to be like Jesus, but sometimes I think we just want to skip straight to glory or at least get glory to skip straight to us. But no, 
Paul recognises the importance and indeed the privilege of fellowship with Christ in his sufferings. Let me take you to the last two. They come up in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 14. Having spoken about uh, his circumstances, he's in prison, remember, as he writes this. Epaphroditus was sent to take care of some of his needs. Uh, He's been looked after by the Philippians. He appreciates that. And in verse 14 he says, Yet it was good of you to share the fellowship in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared fellowship with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Now, this fellowship, I think, actually gets us close to one way that the word fellowship continues to be used in the modern world, outside of the church. Um, Having talked about sharing in his troubles, uh, the sharing in Christ's troubles actually translates over to sharing in one another's troubles. Uh, And I think we experience that as a fellowship, both within our churches, as we take care of each other's needs, as, as one suffers, the body suffers, as there's a need in one place, people rise to meet that need. But I've had the privilege of seeing it across the fellowship between churches. It's actually, it's actually a profound expression, I think, of our fellowship that we share with each other in times of sorrow and in times of joy. Uh, as Tim was talking last night, and he mentioned that, that horrible catalogue of, of pastors falling, the, the first he mentioned was, well, he didn't name him, his name's Dan. Uh, Dan was uh, part of our fellowship here. He'd planted a church in the town of Sale in Gippsland in Victoria. In so many ways, it seemed the perfect fit. He was a Rafi returning to a Rafi town uh, to plant a church and see it established. And then he's in hospital for a year with leukemia. It, it looks good. It looks like he's coming home. He's, he's making plans and preparations. And then something happens in the hospital and he gets seriously sick. And within a number of days, we're saying goodbye to Dan. Now, that hit hard. That hit hard across our fellowship. Uh, that, that hit me hard. Dan was one who was part of our church and a ministry trainee amongst us. Uh, we, we, we love Dan. We love Simone. We still do. We love their children. Um, and that partnering in sorrow actually led to support, to prayer, to encouragement, to practical offers of help. I know that the, the fellows from Melbourne would, would drive up and help out with preaching, spending time with people. Jim would head down there, I'd head down there. Others would be involved in, in helping each other in our troubles. That fellowship that, that goes the extra mile to provide for those who are doing it tough. He also talks here about the financial fellowship that we share, uh, the matters of giving and receiving. And that's where this word does get used today. Uh, those of you who have been in academic circles might have received or had to apply for a fellowship, uh, and that is funding to do particular research uh, or to work on a particular project. And that actually is a significant aspect. It's not an unusual use of the word fellowship. It actually gets to the heart of practical expression of partnering together in something. And I see, again, examples of this. I visit Laneway Church uh, down in Footscray, and they have people there who've actually moved from another church to help them establish and plant that church. They have funding coming from another church to help them uh, get a leg up. Uh, There are prayers that are being prayed by that church for others 
and would just come from another church that was praying for them. And I could tell you that story again and again and again. I think my favourite one uh, is going to speak at uh, the church at Broken Hill, Saltbush, out in the Menindee Lakes National Park, waiting for the helpers to arrive. Two carloads from Orange. That's their neighbouring church. Uh, nine hours away. And two carloads coming to lead the music, to lead the children's program, and to do all the cooking. And they were hanging out to come back again next year. Now, for those of you at Lakes who are willing to go up to Lighthouse, uh, good on you. That's terrific. Uh, But don't complain about the cost of petrol, okay? No, financial fellowship is a big part of what we're doing. Uh, We, by and large, commit money out of our church budgets to give to other churches to give them a leg up. And we, so many of us, praise God for wealthy, generous Christian people who've invested their earnings and their wealth into seed funding Christian ministry in our country. And we praise God for them and why not pray for more? So friends, the Apostle Paul thinks that a focus on fellowship is a good thing. And amongst a a bunch of uh, independent churches, I, I think we do well to remember that. And I think we're getting a lot better at it. We are not fundamentally independent. We're fundamentally in fellowship. That's the nature of our DNA. The core thing. Yes, we have independent churches that are independently governed that, that don't necessarily share every, every piece that another church has. But at our core, we're united in Christ. We have the one spirit. We all receive grace. We're on with the common cause of the gospel. Uh, we know that we are suffering as we are united with a suffering saviour. And so we share in our troubles and we give and receive together. Paul, I think, has captured the nature of who we are and what we want to be, focusing on fellowship. It's not an institutional thing. It's a spiritual thing. Well, that's the first uh, observation Uh, The second conversation point I'd like to have with the Apostle Paul is about the importance of being humbly ambitious. Now that might sound like an oxymoron, to be humbly ambitious or to have humble ambition. And indeed, you you could be tempted to think that because if you go to chapter 2 and verse 3 that was read for us by Leslie earlier, it says... uh, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. There's the contrast. So what is it? Is it ambition or is it humility? And it seems here that Paul's voting for humility. And so to a bunch of entrepreneurs, a bunch of mavericks, a bunch of pioneer church planters, parachuting into new places, venturing into new territory, um, Is there a place for ambition? Or does Philippians put a stop on that? No, I want to say, I think Philippians shows us what humble ambition looks like and that we should be humbly ambitious. And friends, we shouldn't be frightened of oxymorons because we're the fellowship of independent churches. Again, it's, it's part of who we are. Um, Now, you know, there's a lot of fun oxymorons, aren't there? I mean, the, the chairman of, uh, of FIEC, that's, that's Andrew Hurd, um, he was a civil engineer. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> um, I was a social worker. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> um, but the nature of humble ambition is not as silly as it might sound. And I want to work with you to understand this. And it flows from chapter 2 
and the work of Jesus. See, what do we see in Jesus? We see one who's in very nature God, who has everything. We see one who, in contrast to us, is absolutely entitled. Entitlement is right for Christ. And yet, he doesn't take hold of it. He's not there for what he can get. The one who's in very nature God, the one through whom this universe was created, this one becomes part of the creation. The creator made man. God incarnate, taking on flesh. The one who threw stars into space, becoming a fetus in a womb. Now, you can contemplate the words, but I don't think our brains have any capacity to grasp just what's going on there. God entering into his creation. And as Ray reminded us last night, permanently. So God brings man, humanity, into the Godhead. Whoa. Why? That's the point. Why? Well, we see in Philippians why, and it focuses on the end point of of his incarnation. You see, he didn't just become a man to experience what men experience, though he did that. He was tempted in every way as we are. He didn't just become a man in order to uh, identify with birth through to death, the full expression of humanity, though he did that. His death has a purpose. It's not just any death, it's even death on a cross. You see, Jesus heads to Jerusalem out of divine necessity. The Son of Man must be handed over. The Son of Man must be tortured. The Son of Man must be rejected and killed. The Son of Man must hang upon a cross. And the Son of Man must be raised on the third day. There's a divine imperative there. There's that little word. I mean, Philip kept quoting Greek and And let me give you one. I remember this one. Day. D-E-I. It means must. And Jesus keeps saying it. I must do this. I must go to Jerusalem. I've seen all the other wonderful holiday destinations. Got to go to Jerusalem as well. No. No, it's to do with fulfilling his purpose in coming. Being that suffering servant of Isaiah 52, 53. Being that king who's coronated through his death upon the cross, trusting that God will keep his promise to raise him. But why? Sounds macabre, doesn't it? I'm coming and I'm dying on a cross. Why? It's not like Socrates, friends. Not not the one who just wants to take the... The, the, the poison because there's some inherent virtue in, in suicide. No. He comes to give his life as a ransom for many. He comes to substitute himself, the innocent one, for the guilty. He comes so that people might be saved. And rather than suffer an eternity without God, will be raised to life with God spiritually here and now and through death into eternity forever and ever. That's why he comes. Now, now this is not given to us in Philippians as a lesson in Christology. Paul's not giving us, uh, you know, episode three of his doctrine series on the person and work of Christ. No, he's got a purpose in it and the purpose is back in verse four. And five, not looking to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset 
as Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, what was his mindset? Well, it was humble, wasn't it? You don't get a a greater expression of humility than the creator entering creation with the purpose of dying as a substitute for humanity, but we've got to go a little bit further because there's an ambition there. And that ambition is to see people saved. That ambition is to see people saved to the glory of God his Father. And God honours that, doesn't he? Therefore God exalts him to the highest place, gives him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, that's to be our mindset. To be humble, absolutely. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about the churches that I've been involved in. FIC, Crossroads, Stromlo, Point Church, Salt Church, other churches you're a part of. It's not about us. It's about God and the glory going to God. And the glory goes to God as people are rescued from darkness and brought into light. As people are saved from the judgment of God and brought into his forgiveness. As people are reconciled and united in Christ to God for all eternity. So I take it we've been called to be humbly ambitious. Not a selfish ambition, friends. No, there's to be no selfish ambition or vain conceit. Absolutely not, because that's about me or my project or my church or my fellowship, my denomination, even my country. No. No, this is about others, putting others' interests before our own. This is about looking out for those who are in need, in deep spiritual need, in need of transformation that they might know Jesus. And so in our humility, and and we're called to humility, it's humility with a purpose. It's not a a degradation of self for for the purpose of of hiding away and, and just being able to do whatever I please. It's not humble bragging for the sake of pretense and virtue signalling. No, it's actually a genuine humility that counts the cost to do what we can so as to lead others to become Christian, so as to lead others to persevere as Christians, so as to see people with God for all eternity to the glory of God the Father. That's the ambition, and that's what we see in Jesus. Let let me show you just a a few little examples of how this falls out in this book, because it's extraordinary and challenging. Now, Paul's in prison, right? As this letter is written. Come back to chapter 1, verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become more confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. See the mindset there? (laughs) The great danger, I think, for us As we make our plans, as we establish our visions, as we set our strategies, is that when things don't go to the timetable or they don't head in that same direction that we'd set down, we see it as a mishap, as an inconvenience, as an interruption. C.S. Lewis says that our interruptions are just God's good plans and purposes. And that's what's going on here. How else was God able, well, I won't put it that way because God's able to do anything over and above. So let me put it another way. God demonstrates 
that he is able to bring about incredible good through Paul actually being in the prison. Um, It was the way that he was able to reach the palace guard. And God chose this to actually um, embolden those who loved and worked for the gospel alongside Paul to be more courageous in their own gospeling. My temptation would be to see it as an interruption. I mean, there's places to go to, God. There's unreached people groups. And didn't you call me to be the apostle? There's a little, uh, there's, I'm not sure if irony is the right word. It's, it, it's more, it's just a beautiful little fit. Because how did the church in Philippi begin in the first place? Go back and read about it in the book of Acts. It had something to do with prison, didn't it? And the impact that God brought about through what could very rarely be seen as a disruption. Friends, I've had my personal taste of this. You know, in 2011, Fiona and I, together with Grace and Marcus, we were headed to Darwin. We had the house, we had the job, we had all the things in place, we had the core team. Um, we'd started to prepare and, and set vision. We'd, we'd raised all the funds. Uh, we had various people praying for us in different uh, churches around the FIC. Uh, I was pretty confident that, you know, FIC was going to break new ground. We're hitting the Northern Territory this year. Praise God. No, you're not. No, you're not. Days before leaving, I'm admitted to hospital. Shortly after, you've got stage four lung cancer. No, friends, we're not going. No, MTS workers, you've got to wait for your belongings to come back in the shipping container with ours. No, children, you won't get to go to that school. No, we're not going to live in that house. No, we're not going to plant that church. Friends, I can tell you it seemed like a kick in the guts, a massive interruption. And yet God planned for good. And I think if God had said to me, Macca, I I want you to reach Australians with cancer. And I've got a good strategy for that. I'd think, God, there's a lot of other Christians in this country. I've, I've... Look, you know that we've, you, you and I, we've thought of this, right? It's the Northern Territory. No, Macca, it's not. You see, there are no interruptions in the plans of God. He will work through. So yes, in our ambition for the gospel, we make plans, we work, we set vision, we work towards that. But God will determine our paths and we praise him. So let's be humble in our ambition. Come down to the next paragraph. He says, it's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached and because of this I rejoice. Whoa. Now, just soak yourself in what's going in. Other people see Paul's confinement as an opportunity to further... Well, it's not just their cause. It's, it's that confused motive of... of the gospel being God's cause, but there's a selfishness that's driving their gospeling. God, you've got to be more pure than this. God, you, you've got to realise that there's a thing called integrity. God, God, please understand, these people are making my life difficult and it's wrong what they're doing. And they ought to be punished. But that's not Paul. Paul says, what does it matter? Because <laughs> it's not about him. It's not about him. It's about the glory of God and people being saved. And the important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached and because of this I rejoice. So another church is starting up beside me. 
we have another church meeting in the same building as us. God, we were there first. We have a better cultural fit in the community. God, you listening? No, he's not listening to that. God's actually got something to say. Macca, that's two churches. Two are better than one. That's two groups of Christians gathering to support each other. Two are better than one. That's two points of outreach amongst fairly culturally different people because if you opened your blinking eyes, you'd see that there's culturally different people living here. So praise God for that variety. I think we need to learn from the Apostle Paul. He goes on, yes, and I'll continue to rejoice for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Whoa. I think you could probably say that stands out as his personal mission statement. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I tell you, it is so different to people who don't know God, isn't it? I mean, what would be the mission statement? If, if you know, you, you take the truth serum and, and you're on the lie detector, what would be the mission statement for people? I'm sure that boil it down and it's to live is me. And to die is something I don't want to do. That's, that's normal. And that normal creeps into the church. Maybe it's not quite that bad, but I've reflected on this and I thought, yes, this is really hard to say. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I thought in all honesty, particularly in this period of facing a terminal illness, I would probably want to say for me to live is gain... And to die is Christ. Because I want to live longer. And have I understood the reality of what's going on? See, when Paul says to live is Christ, he's saying that that to live is not me because I have a purpose greater than me. To live is to live for Jesus. It's to live for God. It's to live for the salvation of others because that's what Christ is on about. Sure, Sure, to to die is to be with Christ, is to gain everything. But he says, it's better for me to remain that I might be able to minister to you in the here and now. He's not motivated by his own interests. That's the bottom line. How many times do you think he must have thought of gaining? You read through 2 Corinthians, friends. You read the lists in chapter 11, chapter 6. He's beaten up regularly. He's thrown into prison regularly. He's he's stoned to the point of death regularly. He's he's beaten up. He's he's rejected by his own people. You read the end of 2 Timothy. He's deserted me. He's deserted me. He's deserted me. How many times must Paul have been tempted to cry out for gain? The beginning of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 And he says, he's brought me to the point of death that I might learn to trust in the one who raises the dead. Yes, he had lots of reason to cry out, Lord, take me home. But that would be the easy option. And his desire is to take the hard road, not because he's a martyr, but because he loves God and he loves people. And he's got the gospel and he's filled with the spirit. What would you say is your mission statement, your vision for your life? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Well, Paul's desire is to choose that which will further the work of Christ in this world. 
And so he says, convinced of this, I, I know I'll remain. I'll continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. That's where he's focused. Humble ambition. Friends, there's something to say from pretty much every chapter of this book of Philippians on this theme of humble ambition. You see it in Jesus. You see it worked out through the Apostle Paul. You see Timothy, no one else like him, who has a genuine concern for your welfare, chapter 2, verse 20. That's one of the most sobering verses, isn't it? And one of the most joyous. It's a bittersweet. There you go, oxymoron. No one else like him. How sad is that? But he has a genuine concern for your welfare. How good is that? And Timothy there, I take it, is one of those that they are to keep their eyes on. Chapter 3, verse 17. Unless they're tempted to think, hey, you've given us Jesus. Hey, he's God in the flesh. And you've given us yourself and, hey, you met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And you've been commissioned with the gospel to the Gentiles and... And you've got all that training behind you and you've got all that experience. We couldn't possibly model our lives on you. And Timothy, well, he's just your sidekick. You're Batman, he's Robin. I mean, there's not much difference. He writes letters with you. We forget that sometimes. It's not just Paul writing. But Epaphroditus, harder to escape the model because he's one of them. They sent him to take care of Paul's needs. And he gets really sick. So sick that he nearly dies. And he makes sure that they know about it. He has man flu, friends. And man flu is serious. And groaning and complaining and whinging. And, and, and it's, it's acceptable with man flu. Sympathy is important, love, tenderness, hot soup, compassion, pillows, TV. It's all about me when you have man flu. And if you don't understand it, women, it's because you don't get it. <laughs> but the extraordinary thing here, isn't it, is that he was ill and he almost died. But where's his distress? It's in the verse before, verse 26. He longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. He doesn't want them to worry about him. He's concerned for them. And he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help that you yourselves couldn't give me, Paul says. There's the model to follow. See, the temptation when we think about ministry is to carve out our own convenience and our own comfort our own security and our own futures not so much perhaps with the FIC because a lot of those denominational things aren't in place but I'll tell you what it can be hard to get people to move to go onto the mission field to accept a job in the western suburbs of Sydney to go to outback Australia They've been looking in sale now for two years, two and a half for a pastor. They've been looking in Wollongong for over a year and a half. They've been looking in Swan Hill for quite a while. But Swan Hill, well, some of us just discovered it's actually in Victoria. And it's kind of closer to Broken Hill than it is to the eastern suburbs of Sydney. Not sure I want to go to Swan Hill. I hear there's not much surf at Swan Hill. So what is it? What is it that we're most concerned about? They're provocative and challenging words, aren't they, that Paul offers. In chapter 3, he reminds us that it's not about him, his pedigree, or what he's achieved. It's only about knowing Christ, participating with him in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death. And Paul knows 
that he has work to do. Down in verse 12 of chapter 3, I haven't obtained all this or arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Down in verse 13, forgetting what is ahead and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Friends, I take it there's a humble ambition in Christian perseverance. That is, our citizenship, verse 20, is in heaven. So we should set our mind on heavenly things. We eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they'll be like his glorious body. See, that's why to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because there's more to come. What a wonderful thing it is to have every spiritual blessing in Christ, to leap out of Philippians into Ephesians 1. But there's more to come. Maybe not more to be done, but more to experience. We will be freed from our sinful, decaying bodies. We will be freed from our pathetic attempts at unity and reconciliation. We'll be freed from the temptations that that rack our hearts and consciences. We'll be freed from the difficulties that it is to battle against the flesh by the Spirit of God prompting us to display his fruit, to, to live his way. Those things one day will be in the past because we'll be transformed fully and completely into the likeness of Christ our Saviour. Are you ambitious for that? Well then, come back to verse 12 of chapter 2. Dear friends, as you've always obeyed, or as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation, not work for your salvation, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in accordance uh, in order to fulfill his good purpose. Straining, pressing on, taking hold of, looking forward, being ambitious for eternity. We are told to push forward, friends. We, we, we don't have dual citizenship. We have a citizenship in heaven. For now, we're, we're dislocated. We're refugees. We're on a journey. Now, we're to push on. We're to strive. We are to work out our salvation with fear and with trembling. Before God, it is hard work. It's a long road. I used to think that the Christian life was a marathon I've now discovered there's a thing called the Iron Man. And I have uh, a close friend and kind of relative who does 100-mile races on a regular basis. Well, that's closer to what it's like. But I think you need to add in a bit of UFC as well. Uh, where you don't get to do much and everyone does it to you. No, we are to push on, we are to strive to the end, we are to be ambitious to be with Christ. We are to strain to take hold of that for which God has taken hold of us. With fear and with trembling. Consciously looking ahead. If you get there, you look back and you see that it was all of God that made it happen. It's not that you put in your contribution and, and your creator tops it up. No, there's, there's a formula here that we can't fathom and that is we work out our salvation with fear and trembling for, that is because, 
It is God who works in you to will and to act to fulfill his good purpose. Who is it that will get you to the end? Well, you need to work that out. You need to strive. You need to persevere. You need to press on. You need to realize that's where you belong. That's where your citizenship is. That's your eternal address. Keep focused. Don't be distracted. Avoid temptation. Set an example. Follow good examples. You do that because for it is God who works in you both to will and to act according to fulfilling his good purpose. Isn't that good? There's times when my will is not there. And so I take you back to the beginning. Chapter 1, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And let's pray for each other. Thanking God that when he starts something, he finishes it. And it's right for us to feel this way. And look at his prayer down in verse 9. This is my prayer. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best And may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Let's finish with this prayer. I know we've all got different translations. So maybe you pray it in your head as I read this prayer on behalf of us all. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that our love will abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight so that we will be able to discern what is best, that we may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, that we may be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Amen. sing yet not I I'm going to declare what we've just prayed in all these things it's Christ at work in us
Thank you for your grace towards us in Christ. Thank you that we can sing praises to you, hear from you, and now ask you for help in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're going to go to prayer groups straight away. Uh, At 11 o'clock, there'll be morning tea. And at 11.30, we're straight back in here for our final session. If you've run out of things to pray for in your prayer group, um, there's a great list of the churches, all churches in the FIC, you might want to start praying through them if you like. Let's go to prayer groups now.